Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we were visiting with Susan Kane. Susan is the founder and director of Unbridled Thoroughbreds. This is an organization that rescues and rehomes off-the-track thoroughbreds. Susan is a passionate and dedicated advocate for all horses, but especially for thoroughbreds. Last week, she outlined the problem that all too many thoroughbreds face when they are no longer wanted for racing. This week, we're going to pivot away from the depressing statistics to ask, what is the solution? So that's where we'll pick up in this very special interview with Susan Kane. In in clicker training, we learn very quickly to shift to what is it that we want? So instead of looking at the unwanted behavior, we focus very much on what is it that we want? What is it that we want to create? As soon as you focus on what you want, you can come up with solutions. So with that sort of a conceptual background, what's the solution that we want to focus on? How do we pivot away from what is heartbreakingly sad when you think about all of these healthy and often young, young horses going to slaughter, just heartbreaking. How do we pivot from that to what would be the solution that you would love to see? Well, I would love to see with thoroughbreds specifically and with all horses, clearly we have an overabundance of 100,000 horses a year. That's the number who are going to slaughter. So when I look at the horse industries, I say, well, you know, where do we need to bring this back to a sustainable balance? You know, where is the education that informs people as to how they can participate with horses, how they can enjoy horses, how they can be a part of all of the wonderfulness that horses offer to us in our human experience without contributing to the problem. I don't need to breed another horse in the whole of my lifetime in order to be able to enjoy horses. I can volunteer at a rescue. I can lease a horse at a local stable. I could take lessons. You know, I could share a horse with my girlfriend in her backyard. And if I have the means to be able to have my own horses, I want to be fully informed as to what it's gonna take to own that horse for his or her natural lifespan. And what I don't see coming out of the horse industry, any type of front loading for the long-term consequences of breeding a sentient being who has a natural lifespan of 35 years. In racing, the average horse is done by five years old. Well, there's 30 more years at approximately $6,000 per year to maintain a thoroughbred with just basic good health care and maintenance, you know, barring any massive injuries. So that is a lot of money. We, we're in an economic time that is, you know, bifurcating more and more with the super wealthy and then those below the poverty line and the middle is shrinking. And horses are a lot of time 
and money and energy and commitment. So what I would like to see is really on the education front, uh, an emergence of those of us who genuinely care about horses, just sharing what it takes to look after a horse with a clear conscience, with morality, with compassion for that horse's lot in life. And to just think about what we're doing and why before we jump in. Yes. That part of the education process I'm not seeing. You know, there's a big movement in the rescue community that's just a push for adoption, adopt, adopt, adopt. Well, adoption will never solve the aftercare problem of any breed of horse because you're never front-loading the consequences. As a former breeder of thoroughbreds, if, if the jockey club said to me, Susan, you need to put up $6,000 for this horse before we register that horse. And I use the figure of 6,000 because on average thoroughbreds that I have maintained for many years is a minimum of $500 per month for their grain, their hay, their bedding, their vet, their farrier, and whatever other basic needs they have. So if it cost me $6,000 before I could register a thoroughbred and get that, those papers, I would have thought twice about getting involved. I was so fascinated by the fact that, you know, yeah, I'm a person that's a good horsewoman. I have horse skills. I can breed a thoroughbred. I can take part in the New York program and I can have a shot at all of these awards that are offered. And I never really thought about, you know, well, gee, what if it doesn't work out? Where's this horse going to go for his or her next 30 years? And that's from me as an insider. You know, I'm very open about it because I believe that it's these dialogues that will help change the course of horses going forward in the future. But as long as there are, you know, no consequences for what I refer to as bad behavior or disregarding the life of the horse or the reality of the cost of the horse and the very good possibility that most thoroughbreds will end up in slaughter, we will not see any change. The status quo will remain. So I'm very much about just talking about it, dialoguing it, getting it out in the discourse and saying, you know, what can we do? What can we focus on to create a better outcome and stop this overproduction of horses? You cannot deny, it's undeniable, there's an overproduction of 100,000 are going to slaughter every year yes. of all breeds. Yes. And, and why should those of us who are in the community allow this to continue? You know, I said with horse racing, right? You want this, you want to stop the slaughter of horses? You want to stop the drugging of thoroughbred horses? Well, you know what? Stop horse racing altogether until those problems are addressed and solved, and then you can resume. They would be taken care of, I would bet, in 72 hours. But there's no consequences for a lack right. of consideration for right. the horse. So you've used two other words that I think we need to explore. One is livestock. And certainly, when, when I was starting out with the horses, my belief system was so at odds with the common belief system that was in the horse world at the time. And the common belief system that was in the horse world really was that horses were livestock, that horses were stupid animals, and because they were stupid, you needed to use force to train them but don't worry, they don't feel pain the way we do. And that was that was not a subtle message. It was something that, that was said out loud in, in very much those words. My belief system 
and I've said this so many times, my belief system could be summed up with, I read Black Beauty when I was little and I cried when Ginger died. I have always believed, and I know that most of the people who listen to the this podcast would share this belief with me that horses are sentient animals who have a rich emotional life. So there's that other word that you've used several times, which is sentient animal. So there's that split when uh, the, the vets would come and, and I, for a long time, I was using a practice that had a big turnover in their interns. And so it seemed as though every time I had a vet out, it was a new vet. And I would have to give them the, this horse is part of my family. He's not livestock. Please treat him the way you would treat a cat or a dog coming to a family practice. Please don't treat him as livestock. And because the vets had been trained to treat, at that time, to treat the horses as livestock. So what what is this what does it mean and what's the distinction that we are trying to create when we are saying horses are sentient animals? And what are some of the horses you have known or experiences you've had, stories you can share that really help people to connect to this knowing that horses do have rich emotional lives that they, and they have lives that matter to them? I really believe that, you know, the greatest sharing of the sentience of horses that we can offer to the public is to provide unprecedented access to horses. You know, there's a big familiarity with cats and dogs because they live with us. You know, people for the most part don't have horses in their houses. So they're not, they don't have that proximity to them that allows them to see the rich emotional life of horses, the curiosity of horses, the thousands of expressions in, in, in the furrow of a brow of a horse's eye when they're thinking about something, when they're looking at a friend, or all of the different melodies and the range of tones in horses' whinnies and neighs as they communicate with one another. So through Unbridled, one of the things that I am on a mission to do is really just open our doors for people to see for themselves who horses are. I've yet to meet a person, even with the hardest heart, that can look deeply into a horse's eye and hear their story of what this horse has come through. It could be a champion racehorse who was thrown away in a kill pen or a mare that had a lot of babies and was just, you know, they're just getting rid of her or sending her to an auction from a breeding farm to look into their eye and feel, to see who that horse is and feel the forgiveness and the willingness of a horse to connect with a person, even after all that they've been through, that that person isn't changed by that experience. It may only be a little, a little change, but it's something you can't unknow and you can't unfeel it. And that to me is the real magic that horses offer. It's a conversation of the soul. It's a language of the heart that I don't have words for what it is, but I've witnessed it happen so many times and it's in getting people and horses together in an environment where they can really 
experience each other. So that is one of the ways with the, with the general public who doesn't know horses or only knows what they think they know about them from reading, whether it's the racing form or whether it's Black Beauty, to just come, come see and feel for yourself. And then with regard to the veterinarians and young veterinarians coming out of college, that's, that is an area that's very near and dear to my heart as a humane educator, because I know so many young people who want to go forth and be a veterinarian, and they're stepping into what is essentially an industrial complex that's, that's run by big ag, big pharma, and the horse, they're going in with a whole heart to genuinely help horses and be the changes they want to see, and yet it's it's as if their empathy is stripped and just eroded in that environment. So one of the things that, that we're doing at Unbridled is just reaching out with curriculums to high school and college level students who are maybe pre-vet students to really just find the ways to plant the seeds to, that they will ask of themselves, what are we doing with horses and why? What are the, why am I doing this? What is the outcome that I want to see? You know, and at what point in the, you know, 80 or 100 years that we're, we're blessed to be a, above the clay, how much money do we want to earn at the exploitation of fellow beings? You know, so we're, we're in a very interesting time with, I think, a wonderful window of opportunity because as hard as things seem with horses, and I deal with kill pens and horses going to slaughter all of the time, there's a young group of people rising up that have more of an awareness than I've seen in my lifetime as to how we are relating to other beings on this planet. And I think that's evidenced in, you know, the vegetarian movement, the vegan movement, just thinking about it. It, uh, People are concerned about climate change, you know, the contribution of big farming to, or factory farming, and the, the effect that that has on our environment. You know, it's far more than the automobiles in this world. So we have a young, I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful with the young people that are coming up because they're concerned about their future. And, and, and with our, those of us who are compassionate about fellow beings, there's a beautiful opportunity to influence for good because they will soon be the guardians of horses and cattle and livestock and all that, that we see you know, as more mature people. Yes. You know, I think sometimes I had that feeling too when, um, well, when we had our podcast with uh, Anya Buran, she was talking about uh, the system that produces the horses. And in her case, it was in the dressage world. And listening to her, it felt like such a big industry, you know, so hard to change things when you're facing a huge industry like this. And I know certainly that in my time when I was in the entertainment world and have traveled the world, there were times when I felt very discouraged, very angry, very sad, and it felt like, how can I make a difference, you know? Just me in face of all this suffering that I'm seeing. And, you know, Alex, I found that research I was trying to talk (laughs) about in the last podcast. It's... um, it's a research about a little, I mean, it's a, a shrimp, a brine shrimp in the ocean, really. It's this tiny little thing. But they, there was a research done on the effect of this little shrimp in the ocean. 
And because this little shrimp eats at the top of the ocean at night, and then it goes back deep during the day. But there are so many of them that they actually create very strong current in the ocean. And so sometimes I feel like, you know, when you're describing these young people, when I look at our clicker community, which is expanding, I'm hopeful too that we can be like these little shrimps and actually the snowball effect can really start to have a big impact even in face of huge industries like the racehorse industry and you know the horse world in general and even the animal you know because it's also dogs are are there's so many heartbreaking stories in the dog world as well when when I actually first heard about this research was it was a I think it was a dog trainer who actually put something up when Dr. Sofia Yin, the veterinarian who committed suicide. Yes. This this trainer, I think her name was Bram. She 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 talked about this research and I looked the research and I thought, oh how interesting. Because it's it's hard, huh? It's hard to look at the suffering. And you for for me I know that I when when I made my decision to leave Cavalia I, it was very intentional that I came to this, you know, to this podcast, to continuing the work I had done with Alex, uh, because I wanted to be part of the solution. I wanted to be part of promoting an alternative to harsh training methods. And it would have been unbearable for me to... It would have been very difficult for me to do what you do. I, it's so hard to see all this suffering. And so how do you manage the sadness? How do you manage staying hopeful and optimistic and serene in, in face of all the suffering that you see day in and day out? It's, uh, it's excruciating. You know, it's, it's really, uh, I, I can tell you, as best I can put into words, that I have long felt that thoroughbreds chose me. I would have chosen a different path because the heartache is beyond what I can deal with at a lot of times, but apparently I can deal with it. And I've finally surrendered to it. You know, those who know me, closest we always chuckle because I had worked in Manhattan for years and I often said I wish investment banking chose me instead of horses <laughs> because it is a long hard arduous road there are many hours of melancholy there are horses who I have fold for clients I had been involved with I have no idea their whereabouts and they were likely brutally slaughtered in Canada and Mexico and I have to live with that because it's not something I beat myself up about, but what I know now, I can't go back and change that, but I can change the future for other horses. And I really try to honor what I feel is a calling of my heart. And I don't know what other words to put that into other than I can't not do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to find ways to heighten and condense the messaging and how I deploy it into the world so that a meaningful, positive difference is the result 
for the horses that I try to serve. And I find that very challenging in that I get very angry. I, it's mm. very easy for me to point a finger, to call somebody out, to say, how can you be so ignorant? Well, you know what? I was ignorant once too. I was involved in racing and breeding for 20 plus 30 years. I just was kind of clueless what was going on. So a lot of what has really helped my path forward and to give me some uh, parameters and grounding to work with was a few years ago I went back to school to get my certificate in humane education. And when I really looked at, you know, how people learn and the intersection of people and animals and the environment and considering all three as a path forward, it, it brought a healthy balance that took me out of being a person that said, you know, and, and I see it online and I have disdain for it now. Well, people are no good. People are evil. People are so bad. Well, you know what they are. They do evil things. They do bad things. You meet those same people when they were children. They probably never dreamed they'd grow up to be that person or wanted to be that person. So I try to constantly, you know, consider that we need people to be the change that we want to see for horses and to constantly try to refine the way that I send messaging out in the world that when it when it lands in someone's mind or heart that a meaningful difference is is made that a change is made that they don't go breed their pony in their backyard they don't go buy a fractional share of a racehorse they say no I can participate in this way or that way and again going back to the stories of the horses I cannot physically take care of more horses or if I took care of a hundred horses or if I took care of a thousand horses at our organization, that's not going to solve the problem. But emboldening young people with the challenges that they're going to face to really introduce them to considering the concept of who horses are as fellow beings on this planet, to give them the tools to bend the culture, to drive a new narrative, and just embolden, you know, a reimagination of, of what are we doing and why and who horses are and where we are at this point with all fellow beings. To me, that's, that's really what keeps me going in light of knowing that thousands of horses are crossing the border to a gruesome end every day. It's like I have didn't come this far to quit, and there has to be... There has to be a smarter way, a more effective way, and, and really addressing the source of the problems. Why any, to get people to think about why they are breeding a horse. It's a losing, financially, it's a losing proposition for the most part. <laughs> You're not going to make money with horses. It's, it, it's very much in racing. It's a rich man's game for a tax write-off. Well, you know what? If the thoroughbred industry shrunk to that elite portion of those who breed thoroughbreds, it might actually become sustainable at that point. Because you might be down to four or 5,000 horses a year as opposed to 20,000. And we know that thoroughbreds, they are athletes. When you have a thoroughbred as your riding partner, a sound, sane riding partner that's a thoroughbred, it's heaven. So it's not just for racing that thoroughbreds excel. They, they excel as our riding partners as well. They are great joy that way. So can you share, because stories matter, can you share any 
any stories of the horses. And of course, I'm, I don't know whether it would be appropriate, but I'm, of course, thinking of the horse that brought us together recently. Would it be appropriate to, to talk a little bit about Skye? Oh my goodness, Sky! Sky is amazing. So, you know, it—it's it, just—it's—it never ceases to amaze me the resilience within horses and the fact that they will take the leap to trust again humans after the most egregious acts have been performed on them or to them. Um, Sky was an interesting horse. So Sky came out of a neglect case in Columbia County. There were about 20 thoroughbreds and Bridal took eight horses out of, of that property and she was one of them. And when I met Sky, she was very, very skinny. She, it was in February, it was cold. Um, she was hungry and she was the type of hungry, not just hungry, because she hadn't been fed enough, but hungry because she's a young horse and she's growing, which is a different kind of hunger than just saying, you know, I'm fat and happy, but I really want some more grain right now. Right. The depth of her hunger was tangible in her presence. And she had a halter on that was pretty much grown into her head. And she still was friendly. She would come to the fence. And most of the horses were very reticent. You know, they, I can only surmise they'd been very harshly handled. So she would come to the fence, but if I took a hold of her halter, you know, she, you could feel the fright in her, in her body and she would move away. So I took care of these horses for about 30 days on this property prior to moving them home with me at Unbridled. And I got so she would she would see me coming and I would offer her just, you know, a handful of food over the fence. These horses had nothing and they had mulch hay was their, their diet. And then I got to the point within a few weeks, I could actually bring her, hook a lead shank on her and walk her out of the paddock to feed her. And she had a friend named Wink who is here currently um, at the farm. Uh, hopefully her perfect partner will appear sometime soon. But Wink would just run the other way in terror. But Skye would come out, and every day I would feed Skye. And my only agenda with Skye was to let her know that a kind hand would be coming forth and that she could get some food. And that was it. I didn't try to pet her. I didn't try to scratch her. I just accompanied her in what is a very traumatic situation to a horse, which is not knowing if they're going to get food or not. So when Skye... Uh, came home to Unbridled, say about a month or so after uh, she was signed over to us. She was probably the most, the most timid of the eight horses because, again, she was just so hungry. And she, when I would walk her in and out of the stall or walk her in and out of a gate, she would just panic and rush and she's a very big horse and a beautiful size and shape she's probably about 16 2 and you know well proportioned and sizable and i had sensed that somebody must have just like whipped her in and out of a stall or a gate quickly where she banged her hindquarters and horses are so sensitive and they remember everything so i had spent a lot of time with sky not trying to correct her, not trying to do anything other than say, I'm a human in your presence. 
and on what would be essentially one would call a loose lead shank when we walked in and out of the stall or in and out of the gates on a regular basis every day you know it wasn't something we practiced just during the course of our routine she would scoot out i would never snap a lead shank on her not say back up and get back in there you need to walk through like a lady i just let her come through you know i have enough horsemanship skills that i'm able to know that the space that we are in it is safe you know and if she scoots out it's going to be okay but it was interesting to me that after repetitive scooting on her part (laughs) and not not hitting her hips not being snapped on or punished on her face for something that she was genuinely scared of right i don't want to go through here and have my 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 hips hit or my butt hit you know or my side scraped that on her own eventually within i think it was another six weeks or eight weeks or so just in and out peacefully quietly and what I love about horses is, as much as I think I know, they always let me know how much I don't know about them. And there is so much to learn because in my past upbringing with racehorses, she would have had a chain around her face, a chain under her lip. You know, I could have been there with a, with a stick in my hand and said, you want to run me over coming out the door? Back yourself up. That's, the, that's what I grew up with. That was the norm. That was normalized throughout my childhood and I've learned because I've allowed horses to teach me that there's a better path forward you know where we can both foster trust and and build a real relationship and what I found with all of the rescued horses over the past year and a half or so is I have taken that approach with them and allowed them the time and the space that they need to come into the fullness of their expression And the interesting thing is the less that you're punitive with them, the sooner they come around and express who they are. And it becomes fun because they're curious, they're intelligent, they're sensitive. They all have different proclivities. You know, and Skye, she was very, very defensive about her food. You know, and I never, ever... Uh, use food to discipline to discipline a horse you know I've seen people stand in front of a hungry horse holding a food bucket and they won't feed the horse until the horse calms down well the horse is hungry the horse is living and breathing and in my opinion because that horse is living and breathing he or she has a right to food and I'm not going to be the one to withhold it right so she went from a horse that I'd go in with a bucket of food she'd have the ears pinned the hind foot would be going everything all she wanted was her food to herself i just walk in dump it in and get out went so far as to i have all of my doors are i I have a a stall gate on so everyone's head can go out that we also have sliding doors she would be so concerned about her food that she would eat at her dish and she'd run over to patrol the door that nobody was going to come in so for a few months i just kept that the sliding door when it was her time to eat better her food and close the sliding door and then that behavior just dissipated two things with you know satisfaction of food and then secondly she realized nobody was going to take that away from her so there's so many things that I've seen with horses and I've learned that they've taught me that formerly one would have taken a punitive approach to correct them to just being a person that facilitates them in knowing and understanding that they're safe and 
their basic needs will be attended to. And in doing that, I've seen horses blossom and present personalities and um, expressions that I never even knew they had. And they are, I mean, I have to shove them off of me now because, and nothing to do with food, just because they're so loving and they're so interested and like, well, what can we do together? You know, well, what are you doing? You know, and it's just, it's been the most wonderful part of my human experience with horses is to really have had the privilege of, of them showing themselves to me. You know, and I wasn't a person who necessarily deserved it because I wasn't always, I didn't always approach horses this way, but they showed me how to approach them. And that I feel is, is at the heart of why I speak. I came in tears talking about them. Right. It's why I do what I do because that is their voice. Yes. Those of us they've shown to need to find ways in the human vocabulary to share with the world to change hearts and minds. Yes. Who horses are. Because that's where the solution sits. There's the solution. And and for people who are wondering, Sky now is living in the most wonderful clicker training home with just you know, she won the lottery. She so won the lottery. She's with one of my favorite clients who who is looking for her next forever horse because because her horse had aged out, had lived into her 30s, and she has two other very elderly 30-year-old horses, and she was ready to open her heart to a younger horse, and, and Sky won the lottery. So she's, she's now learning about clicker training, and I've had the privilege of getting to know her, and what a phenomenal learner. She just knocks my socks off. So the preparation, I mean, this explains a lot of why she's so open and why she settled in so well with Julie, that because you gave her that space and that time, and there were so many things that this made me think of. It's like one is that abuse is that which sits outside the cultural norm. So if we are at the racetrack, I mean, I spent time at the racetrack. I, I learned because that was the culture. I learned how to put a chain over a horse's nose. And, you know, I haven't shanked a horse in 30 plus years, but I learned how to do it because at the track, that's what you're taught. And you're taught, you know, the worst thing in the world you can do is let go of a horse, especially if it's a young stud colt. So, Abuse is that which sits outside the cultural norm. So when you're inside that world, you don't think of yourself as an abusive person. You don't think that you're a horrible person. You're doing what you've been taught. And we do this throughout the horse world. We are taught certain techniques and we don't think of ourselves when we're within that cultural norm uh, that we're doing anything abusive. But then when you start to step outside of that culture and you look at things from a different perspective, you begin to say, oh, mm, that's not something I really want to be doing. So it becomes the Maya Angelou. When I was young, I did the best I could. And when I knew better, I did better. 
And, and I've always loved that expression because often people are filled with, with guilt uh, over what they've done in the past, whether it's to a horse or a dog. You know, they, they will say, oh, I wish I, wish I could, uh, I knew then uh, what I know now. I wish I, I feel so, so sorry for the, the, the dogs that uh, grew up, that I grew up with or the horse that, that I uh, learned from. And, and I would say, you know, those were our stepping stones. Because we, we had these experiences, it allowed us to move on and, and learn and grow and change our perspective. So I never get mad at my stepping stones because they brought me to, uh, they brought me to where I am and they brought me to an understanding of clicker training, which is a great world to be in. And then it reminded me of a book, and I hope I get the title right. It's A Long Way Gone, I think is the name of it. It was written by one of the child soldiers in Sierra Leone, which seems like an odd book to, to bring up, but he wrote his autobiography. His village was attacked by rebels, and he and some of boys of his same age escaped into the bush, managed to avoid the rebel army for quite a long time, and then they were captured and made to fight, and they were drugged. So they were part of how they, they why they were able to do these really horrible things was that they were under the influence of drugs. And he described some of these absolutely horrific things that he did. But he was one of the lucky ones because he was he was captured by the army and taken, and I may be getting some of these facts wrong, but the gist of it was that he went into a rehab program. And at first, he and the other boys were incredibly angry and filled with incredible guilt. And they, so they were violent. They were violent towards one another. They were violent towards the staff. They were very destructive in their environment. And the staff met their violence by saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And at first, this made them even more angry. How can it not be our fault that we burned villages down? How can it not be our fault that we did these horrible things to people? How can it not be our fault? And the staff would just say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And when they were met with this non-judgmental, non-reactive response, they were able finally to take a breath and move on. And he was able to come to the United States to get an education. He's now an author. It was a phenomenal book. And I'll have to see if I can conjure up his, his name, but it escapes me at the moment. But that's what you were doing with Skye and with the others. You're, you're giving her the space and you're saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault when you're coming over the top of the stall door to guard your food. It's not your fault. It's totally understandable. And when you give her that space, what then emerges is this absolutely phenomenally lovely horse. Phenomenally lovely horse. Well, it really comes from a place of genuine love and considering the world 
through the horse's eyes, which I can truly say has been, you know, I'm 53 years old. It's been a 50-year journey to get to that point. And I'd like to find ways to be of assistance in facilitating fellow horse people to realize it's okay to have been wrong about yourself or what you thought and to, you know, make this world a better place for horses by taking the good from your past and, you know, adopting new ways of approaching horses to help change the future for horses. And that's something, you know, I talk about humane education. That's the people aspect of of that, you know, Venn diagram that yes. to, we need to address as fellow humans. It's, you know, I was... I was not always nice to horses either, but I know better now and I do better. And I'd like to find a, a way to really encourage and inspire um, people to remember their first love of horses. You know, what was it that you fell in love with? And just revisit that and rebuild uh, a kinder future. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what a great note. I think this is a good place to bring this to a close and thank you very much very much indeed for the time for the time and for all the work you're doing for the yes horses. yes uh, yes yes and before we do close so if people are interested in learning more about you and unbridled thoroughbreds what how do they connect with you well, the best spot is our website is unbridledfoundation.org, and that's U-N-B-R-I-D-L-E-D, foundation.org. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook. It's Susan Kane, K-A-Y-N-E, and Unbridled Thoroughbred Foundation is on Facebook as well. So we do a lot of daily updates and a lot of connectivity there. And then many people that I meet on Facebook who are interested in more of, you know, an insider's uh list of activities and happenings at Unbridled, um, we put onto an email list to make sure that our information gets to them. And I'm really excited about sharing our horses and the stories of our horses with anybody who has an ear to hear and just, you know, wants to come and get quiet and see how beautiful and magnificent they are and just all of the joy and the gifts that horses offer to the human experience. It's just a wonderful, wonderful privilege and a joy um, to be in their presence. So I hope to, you know, I hope to usher in a new, a new era of kindness for all horses by just getting people hands-on with them. So if people who are in the area, the sort of upstate New York, New England area, can come and uh, visit at certain times, uh, for your the programs you're running and then if people want to become more involved via the internet are there are there things that you do within the foundation that are more online we do I mean we have un- we have unbridled stable on Facebook which is a private group which is inside activities with the horses at the stable unbridledfoundation.org of course is our website and through that you can sign up for a newsletter for an email list or special events that we have we do paint and sip events so people can really come and spend time and notice horses and notice details about you know, the contours of their shapes and their expressions, and then capture 
that experience through the intimacy of creating art that they can bring home and think about. So we're, we're always just trying new ways to solidify and deepen uh, a relationship with horses. And that's different for all people, but most of all, our place in the, in the discourse and the community is to make horses, thoroughbreds specifically, available for people to experience hands-on. We don't do any riding here. It's all groundwork and visiting and just communing with the horses. Groundwork is fun. Yes, yes, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. It's a lot of fun, and I'm just, I'm just so fascinated every day by all of the new things that horses show me that they're willing to do in participation with us. So that's, you know, that's a journey that I bring any visitors on. Uh, we are, you know, by appointment, and as we get settled into our new property, we'll have a regular schedule. Um, of events and activities and I would love to have you know some clicker training workshops and that would be great you can learn about it and just yes. you know just just experience it so well yes. I think I think it's part of the solution too because certainly I mean you've you've explained to us quite well you know that the overproduction is a problem but I think also a lot of horses are abandoned because of behavioral problems that were actually created by a lack of knowledge on the part of the person who was teaching them, training them. Um, you know, I just heard last week of a very, very young horse. I think this horse is one year old who is going to be sold because when they try to clean his feet, he kicks. Well, he didn't learn that on his own, you know, this, this was taught. And now, I mean, I'm not very hopeful for this horse because people get rid of him because he's kicking. I mean, what's, I don't know what, what the future holds for him. But I think if, when, when we get an animal, we have a responsibility to educate ourselves so that we can really protect the welfare of that animal in all the different spheres of his life, you know? So that also means learning about training so that you have a companion that is a joy to live with and will stay with you all his life. Training is a safety net. Yeah. That's how I, I, I think of it. And the more you learn about training, the more training you put into your the relationship you have with a horse, it's like you're weaving more threads, more lines into that safety net. You're making them stronger and stronger and stronger. And you're, it's, that horse is more likely to be able to remain in his situation. But as, as soon as you start to, oh, the horse is difficult to pick up his feet. Well, that's like you're fraying some of the, the strong threads of that safety net. You're unraveling them. And you unravel enough of those ropes of that safety net, and the safety net collapses under the horse. So training is part of the solution. Humane training. Kind training. Training that really has the welfare of the horse front and center is absolutely part of the safety net that we weave underneath our horses. We're, we're all moving in the same direction in terms of finding solutions for our horses. And, and I think the more we, especially with clicker training, because one of the things that I've always loved about clicker training is instead of suppressing personality, we are allowing personality to be expressed 
So when, as you're working with the horses, you see the real expression of who they are. And, and you also, in the beginning, you will also sometimes have revealed what is their training history, which sometimes they have some, a lot to say about how they've been handled, and it's not always pretty, but you can get past that. And Susan, you were just describing a process for getting past that with Sky. So what, what we're doing with the training is we're allowing for, for the expression of behavior. So, so the phone is ringing. Somebody wants to get in touch with me. So why don't we, why don't we say it's been wonderful having this conversation? And Susan, I know you and I are going to have many, many, many more connections because we're too close. I mean, it's so exciting that we've discovered that we're, we're so close. You're just half an hour down the road, which is really exciting. So I know we're going to be doing more together. And I'm going to be getting my thoroughbred fixes on a much more regular basis. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and allowing me to speak up about thoroughbreds and Alexandra and Dominique. I look forward to both of you visiting um, at any time our doors are open and really for providing this platform to truly give horses a voice and share all of the wonders of the expression that they do offer when they're given the opportunity to speak to us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I wish you much courage um, to continue this wonderful work you're doing. Thank you much. And we'll say goodbye. Thanks as always for listening. The book I was referring to in the podcast is Ishmael Bay's A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Child Soldier. Next week, we'll begin our new conversation. But before you go, two quick announcements. The revised edition of my book, The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, is going to be shipping the first week of December. So I should have it in plenty of time for Christmas. And do please visit my new Facebook group, Horses for Future, and listen to the Horses for Future podcast. We'll keep the focus here in the Equosity podcast on training, In Horses for Future, we'll be learning how horse people can make a difference, not just for our horses' health, but for the good of the planet. Horse people can make a difference. We can be like the tiny shrimp that Dominique talked about in this podcast. Our efforts taken together can make a difference. So do please join me at Horses for Future to contribute your own good ideas. And next time, We'll be talking about foot care here on this podcast. That's a huge topic. We'll be starting off by just taking a small piece of the puzzle to explore, and we'll see where that takes us. So goodbye for now, and have fun with your horses.